Today's passage is from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me as we look to Christ, the confession of the Christ. I, I um, was struck this morning looking up at the podium and the, the piles of Bibles that were beginning to pile up for a little bit there. Did you notice that? Uh, two Bibles sitting here in a stack, two iPads with scripture references uh, in them. Another Bible is brought up to read from, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Because if we are to confess the Christ with the disciples, with Peter, we are going to have to confess the Christ that is given to us according to the scriptures, according to Mark's account of walking with Christ, as, as is probably Peter who, who gave Mark much of the information from this account uh, to record for us. As we look at the other scriptures, as we see the Christ revealed to us in the Old Testament, in, and in the New, we see the Anointed One, the King, the one who would come and restore the kingdom. The center of this morning's text deals with Jesus as the Christ. So one of the things that we should do is we should begin our time by asking the word, question, what does the word mean? Uh, maybe before we even get into what is Jesus trying to communicate by uh, giving us this revelation of himself as the Christ, the Christ simply means anointed. It's a Greek word that we use in English for the Christ, this Christus, the anointed one. It's often in reference to the anointing of a prophet or a priest or a king. Of course, we know Jesus to be the great prophet, priest, and king. But by the time we come to this time in history that Mark is Recording for us here in Mark chapter 8, we see that the dominant reference to the anointed one is to that of Jesus as king. He is the anointed king. Christ is the Greek word for anointed, and there's a Hebrew word for the same idea of anointed one, and that word is Messiah, okay? So during the course of this morning, you're going to hear me use the word Christ and the word Messiah, I'm using them interchangeably. Sometimes I don't even know which word I'm using at that particular moment, but you know what I mean by both of them. This technical word, Christ and Messiah, that's being used in Scripture about the anointed one. I tend to use the word Messiah, though, when I'm speaking about Jesus as the anointed king. I tend to to, to default to Messiah when I'm speaking in that way because we're so used to hearing the word Christ as something more like a title, right? We talk about Jesus Christ, right? I open the service by speaking, welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like Mr. Jesus, sir, right? Um, that's how we tend to use the word, uh, just like you might use the word King Jesus. Well, King is not only a title, it's also a role that he occupies, and something that he is anointed to. So we tend to use the word Christ in that way, and we tend to be okay with reserving Messiah for the role that he occupies, even though they're, they're the same word, okay? We just tend to use it that way. 
The word Messiah is typically maintained for the meaning of the anointing or expectation or fulfillment of the appointed office. And so I'll probably fall into those two categories quite often this morning. Uh, Before we look at the text together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We're not stumbling around with a variety of kings, a variety of religious leaders and people who have gone before us or people who claim to be great things today. But we've been given your word by which to know who is anointed, who is foretold, who is the one that has come, who is the one that bears the title Christ, occupies this great anointing of Messiah. Who Who is the one that you have sent to restore all things? And God, there's not a person on this planet that doesn't long for restoration. Lord, I pray that we could see this morning, and we could join in the confession this morning that you, Jesus, are the Christ. Lord, do this work by your word. Do this work by your spirit to bring us to this very personal place, to join with all those who have gone before us in the confession of Jesus Messiah. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The passage begins, if you look with me, at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples a question. Now, this is important. We're in the middle of this series, and the the series title that we've been working with is On the Road with Jesus. Jesus is always moving. We probably could have said in the boat with Jesus, all right? Most of the time it seems like we've been crossing the Sea of Galilee back and forth together. And this morning we see Jesus again on the road. And this time he's on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And then we're told this little phrase, and on the way he asked his disciples, and then we have a question. Most of the ministry of Jesus that we have seen in the Gospel of Mark thus far has been in the area of the Sea of Galilee, right? Crossing back and forth between sort of the Israel's side of the sea and then the Gentile side of the sea. Back and forth he goes. But beginning at this moment in Mark's account of the Gospel, Jesus begins to make his way. He makes his way specifically to Jerusalem. And that little phrase begins to happen quite a lot. This on his way, Mark records for us. And on that way is both figuratively and literally on his way to Jerusalem. And we know what he finds there. Literally and figuratively, Jesus is on his way to the cross. From this moment forward in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus isn't doing some sort of teaching ministry around the Sea of Galilee, but he's set his sight to the cross. He's beginning his journey, and the beginning of that journey is marked by a question and a confession in our passage this morning. And that question is, who do people say that I am? Great question. The disciples have been dealing with this question since chapter 4. Jesus has been in the business of teaching, right? And as he's teaching, he's also demonstrating the answer to the question, who do people say that I am, 
Well, he's been telling them who he is. He's been telling them who he is by the, what he's teaching and what he is demonstrating. So that back in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, 41, we have this. They were filled with great fear at the calming of the sea. Jesus stands up, peace, be completely peaceful, and the winds and the waves obey him. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? And Jesus is saying, well, what are they saying? What are they saying I am? Well, there's a lot of evidence in Mark about Jesus. We have the gospel beginning with John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Lord. One of the things that the people ought to say, well, this is the Lord who has come, according to the announcement of John the Baptist. But then it moves quickly to the Father's affirmation of the Son in the baptism of the Son. And then it moves quickly to the Son's faithfulness to the Father in the temptation. We should be getting to know, as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark, the crowds who read this Gospel should have some impression of who Jesus is. We have Mark launching quickly into the ministry of proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, according to the gospel of Mark. And then he goes from place to place, Jesus does, demonstrating his power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to exercise his power over nature. Who is Jesus? Oh, he's the one who has power over all things, even death. That's who Jesus is. In summary, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is teaching and demonstrating his authority to restore the world. I'm going to say that again because it's important for us as we come to see Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is teaching and demonstrating that he is the one with authority to restore the world. Mark is making a narrative argument that, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He is the restorer that was to come. Now, Jesus comes out and he asks the disciples a question. So, is it working? I've been teaching. I've been demonstrating. What are the crowds saying about me? Have they been catching on? Is it is what I'm doing on clear display before the crowds, and more importantly, disciples, is it clear to you? Are you catching on? And the disciples answered together. They said, well, if you look at the passage, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they told him. John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. Jesus is, maybe in the collection of these three things together, some sort of great prophet that's been foretold. And you're fulfilling that great office of John the Baptist. Well, Herod came up with that idea. He was haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist after killing the man of God. And he's haunted by this idea, and he thinks that John the Baptist is literally raised from the dead and coming to get him. All right, well, that's not Elijah, not one of the prophets. But if you sort of take these three things together, we get the image that there is some sort of final eschatological end times prophet that's coming, and he's going to announce something, and he is going to restore something. And the people are catching on to this. There's something special about Jesus. 
One of the places that you could go, and I would encourage you, write this down in the margin of your Bible, and then go back and read it later this week. Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. Here Moses is speaking, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the people have been waiting for that prophet. And they're trying to give ear to that prophet. Maybe John the Baptist was that prophet. No, he died. He was killed by Herod. Well, maybe Jesus is like, like a, a coming in the power of John the Baptist. Maybe Elijah was the prophet. And then if you remember, Elijah didn't die, but rather he was taken directly to see the Lord. And maybe he will come again directly to announce the restoration of all things. Who is this prophet? Maybe Jesus is the prophet that Moses was speaking about. When the disciples consider the people's views of Jesus, it's clear that they see Jesus as a great, great man. A great man in a long line of great people that God has sent. They see the fulfillment of their hopes wrapped up in this past. And now it's being fulfilled in an even greater degree in the present. So in essence... When the people look at Jesus, all they saw was a great man. Even the greatest man in a line of great men. But hear this, church. That is not sufficient for a confession of the Christ. He is not the greatest in the line of many greats. He is singular. He is not from below and blessed. He is from above. And he has come to bless. And he is a different thing altogether. Is Jesus some great variation in a line of greatness? Is he, or is he singular and unique? Really, that, this, the heresy of the crowds, that Jesus is simply in a line of great teachers, that he's just one of the prophets, but the greatest prophet, and now he's going to execute what all the prophets have been talking about, is, is really the same heresy that you get when you hear that Jesus is, the, is a great teacher. Maybe even the greatest teacher. Maybe when you hear that Jesus does all things well, all of that means is he's managed to pull off what his fellows before him didn't pull off, but he's still like them. He's a great teacher, but that's about it. What's singular is his greatness, not his otherness. We will discover that Jesus' ways are not the ways of the world. We're going to discover it literally in a couple of verses from now. Typically, when I've preached on this passage in the past, I've preached this as a whole, the whole of the end of this chapter 8. Because you see very quickly that Jesus is not like those who came before they, he is not what the people would expect. In fact, they wouldn't, no one would expect what Jesus reveals himself to be, the nature and the role of the Messiah. Which brings us to the question, what were they expecting? What was the expectation of the crowds? The focus of the messianic expectation was a focus of result, not the means. 
I think this is really important for us, and I, I, honestly, I wrestled in how to make this clear to you, okay? So, so try and track with me, and if you can think of a better way to say it, write it down, share it with me later, and we'll send it out to everybody, okay? Really wrestle with how to communicate that the expectation of the Messiah was an expectation of result, not of means. The expectation of the coming of the Messiah was that it would bring a time of great peace and restoration to the people of God. That the people of God would be restored to, to a position of power and of safety as a nation, as a people. A great king, the restorer, the Christ, would sit on the throne of David. How would a people know the coming of this Messiah? Well, because they would see a great time of restoration that would appear. What, what I'm wrestling to communicate is it's not about the Messiah. It's, what, it's about what the Messiah can do for the people. There was an expectation of restoration, not that the center of the good news would be in the Messiah himself. That you can have all the restoration of the world, all that you want, but if you don't have the Messiah himself, you don't have anything. And the Messiah would demonstrate that in a particular way that didn't look like restoration at all, but looked like dying on a cross. It looked like failure. No Messiah could die the way Jesus died. Because the, the emphasis on the Messiah was some sort of eschatological hope in this world, in the line that that had played out in the past. But did they see that the restoration that Jesus was bringing to the people, that there's some evidence that some did see Jesus as a restorer. They saw him restoring sight to the blind. They saw him bringing comfort to the hopeless. And in that way, he's meeting some of their expectation. Jesus the restorer. Why? Because the Messiah is the restorer of all things, according to the prophets. This is true. But there's also evidence, especially if you watch the religious leaders' responses to Jesus, that Jesus' methods did not meet their expectation for a Messiah. You see, you can get restoration, but not be impressed. There were many people that were watching Jesus, the restorer of many things, who were unimpressed with Jesus because they were unimpressed with how he was going about it. You see, the Messiah, if I could say, I think this is as close as I can get to it. The Messiah is not only about an expectation of restoration. The, the good news is not only good news of restoration. The good news is the good news of how we are restored in the Messiah. There is a how that is attached We'll look at this much closer next week, but Jesus will explain not only the good news of restoration for the people, but he would also explain the methods, the way the Messiah would restore the world. He would bring about good news of res restoration, not through military might. In fact, he would tell his disciples to put away their swords, not by diplomacy, he wouldn't bring some sort of artificial peace among the nations. But he would bring about restoration through the sacrifice of his own life. And friends, that news wasn't received well. 
You can talk about restoration all you want, but when you talk about the Messiah dying, we've got a problem. It's not the good news that people expected. What Jesus is about to explain in the next verses that we'll look at next week is that there is no true gospel result apart from the particular gospel work. There's no true gospel result, no true restoration, without a suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Savior. There's no gospel fruitfulness apart from a particular manner of the Messiah's faithfulness. There's no restoration of the people without the suffering of the Messiah. This is the point we ought to see in today's passage. When Jesus preaches the gospel, he's not just announcing restoration, the end of the gospel. Jesus is announcing the means of the gospel, his suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. In our partnership course, many of you have been in our partnership course. In fact, we get to announce a new partner, a family this morning. And in our partnership course, we will talk about the gospel in the air and the gospel on the ground. And in so many ways, the gospel in the air is the announcement of the gospel of, of the great restoration of all things. We have creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? Then we have the gospel applied, the death and resurrection of Jesus applied to the particular human heart in the gospel on the ground. The fullness of these things is what we find in the Messiah. You see, the people had some sense that there was something special about Jesus. They had some sense that he was restoring things in ways they'd never seen before. No prophet has done what Jesus has done. They certainly had a great longing for restoration that the Messiah might bring. But they had no sense of the means of the gospel. And when Jesus would begin to reveal not only the gospel end, but the gospel means, you're going to see that the rejection begins. Jesus is about to speak of his suffering and rejection, and that is going to begin right away, right after he announces the means of the gospel. Friends, I think this morning... Even among the church, we have the same problem of the crowds. Many will claim that all that we really need to know is that Jesus saves. All we need to announce is Jesus saves, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus, come hang out with us, and all we'll talk about is Jesus' love for you, and that because of his love for you, you can be saved, restored, encouraged, blessed. All that the world needs is to focus on Jesus who loves you. But when Jesus presses his disciples on what they and the crowds know about him, it's as though they're saying the same thing. Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you and how you restore all things. We confess Jesus with the crowds that Jesus saves. But Jesus himself presses the disciples that if they are to receive the good news that Jesus saves, that Jesus restores, they have to be prepared to receive the means of that restoration. That is to say that they must not only proclaim that Jesus saves, but that Jesus forgives, that Jesus loves, and that his love takes the form of a suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected Messiah. Why? Because that's what our sin demanded. 
Our sin does not demand someone to rise up from among us and show us a better way to live. There's no reordering of society by justice or peace that can give us the utopia that we all are demanding. There is only the just sacrifice of a Christ on a cross for sinners. And in him, in that Christ, Jesus saves. You see, we preach Christ, yes, but what, what do the New Testament authors tell us? We preach Christ and him crucified. From this moment on in the Gospel of Mark, the means of the Gospel will become the explicit focus and revelation. If I could just, before we move on, make one more practical application I think this is why there's a longing for unity in the church, right? Don't we want to be unified? I think it's, it's much like the people. The, the, surely the crowds wanted to be unified about some great messianic expectation. They all wanted to be together as Israel under the Messiah, the king. But in the effort to be unified, one of the things that I'll hear is we need to stop bickering about all these gospel issues. And I'm thinking, gospel like, who is Jesus and what did he do? When I say gospel issues, I mean like the good news of Jesus Christ's person and work. And I'm thinking, that's not bickering about something that is unimportant. Why do we pay attention to doctrine? Because when we talk about the doctrine of Jesus' person and work, we're talking about the center of the gospel. We'll look at that in detail next week. I would love for the church to be unified. But our unity isn't found in a desire for restoration. Our unity is found in a person and his work. And we are given so much more than Jesus saves to proclaim. We are given Christ and him crucified to proclaim. That's the crowds. They're all thinking lots of things. And they're all longing for restoration. Jesus isn't satisfied. He's got another question. He's a master question answer. Ask her. He does all things well. Who do people say that I am? And he told them, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. In verse 29, he says, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Speaking to the disciples, Peter pipes up, probably voicing the message of the disciples together. Peter pipes up, you are the Christ. James Edwards was particularly helpful again in this passage. If you have a chance to read his commentary, pillar commentary, I would recommend it to you. He calls this a call to step out of the majority opinion and into personal confession. To step out of the majority opinion and into personal confession. At first, Jesus gives the disciples a little cover who do the people say that I am? They could hide their own confession behind the noise of the crowd. Isn't that nice? Isn't it nice when we could maybe just recite the Apostles' Creed together? And we should do that. We should do that more right here in our gatherings and our services together. We should pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. We should do that. It's one of the things that the elders should work on establishing together. But isn't it nice to hide behind the crowd and not have anyone say, so um, who do you say Jesus is? 
and then have to stand up and not hide behind the noise of the crowd, but make a personal confession of Jesus? It might be something like reciting that creed, but doing it alone and being asked, do you believe that? And everyone pauses. It's good, it's true, but there comes a moment where we have to stand before our maker and give an account of our faith. I think that, that such a confession is something like the moment of baptism, isn't it? Up to that moment in the service, everyone's been doing this thing together. We've been singing together. We've been listening together. We've been praying together, right? We took communion together. Even the other ordinance is, is very together. And then we come to this baptism moment, and there's one person in the baptismal pool. The only one there, and it feels as though the world is watching. But when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you join with the throng of those who have gone before. And so even in that solitary moment of confession, you would join with the crowd's confession, the crowds of those who have made the true confession of Christ before. You stand with Peter and all the faithful ones who stake their hope in this one truth. You, Jesus, are the Christ. You are the anointed restorer of all things. There is a call this morning to that personal confession. Whatever Messiah is, Peter says, when he says you are the Christ, whatever that is, Jesus, you're that. The problem for Peter is that he had a misconceived perception of what the Messiah would do. As one commentator puts it, he had the proper title, but he had the wrong understanding. There was, at the time, a growing perception and expectation of what the Messiah would look like. In Jeremiah 23, again, another scripture to jot down in the margin and read the context. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Man, we ought to... We ought to desire that today. Man, does the world need that kind of king. And long for that sort of justice. Friends, that's behind our statement at the end of communion that we sort of tagged on there. Lord, come quickly. Come quickly, righteous branch. You see, in the exile to which Jeremiah is speaking, in the exile, the people of Israel, they lost everything. But they were being told that there is a king who is coming who will see everything restored. I want to read these words from James Edwards as he gives an explanation of the messianic hope. The most common conception of the Messiah in pre-Christian texts is as an eschatological king. Otherwise, the Messiah, messianic hope remained fairly general. Though the Messiah God would establish and protect an everlasting kingdom over all the earth, the Messiah would be the perfect king chosen by God from eternity through whom God would first deliver Israel from its enemies. Do you hear what God's going to do? He's going to deliver Israel from its enemies and then cause Israel to live in peace and tranquility thereafter. He continues, He would be endowed with miraculous powers, he would be mighty and wise in the spirit. The Messiah would be holy and free from sin. And the final anointed one and true king of Israel would 
destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth. He would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles, gather the faithful from the dispersion, and rule in justice and glory. So if this is what Peter is confessing, friends, it is a good and true confession. It is a confession that is in accordance with the Scriptures. But how would the Messiah accomplish a gathering of all of the Lord's children? How would the Messiah bring peace to the nations? Peter and really no one were prepared to make that confession just yet. They hadn't seen it yet. This is one of the most important things for us to see this morning. Jesus calls forth Peter's confession of faith. Matthew says, to, uh, records that Jesus told him, Peter, this was revealed to you not by man, but by God. Your confession that I'm the Christ, that's a good confession. It's right and it's good. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter's faith alone. Jesus is the master disciple maker. If you've been with us in previous weeks, you've seen this, right? You've seen Jesus. People keep encountering him. And, and they come to him with some level of faith, some probably even mistaken understanding of who he is. He grabs him by the hand, leads him out of the city, and says, let me bring sight to your blind eyes. He never leaves anyone in the faith that they come to them, to him. You see him do this over and over. He never leaves them there, and he doesn't do it for Peter. He continues to reveal himself, and the revelation of Jesus is a profound and costly challenge. Do you hear that? When Jesus reveals himself, and we see him for who he is, it's profound, and it comes with a cost. We'll see that Peter's not quite ready to pay that cost. He's not okay with Jesus' revelation of himself. But when Jesus, when we confess the Christ, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He shows us more of himself according to his word and according to his spirit's application of that word to our hearts, and it's costly. And we're constantly challenged. And we're told at the end of today's passage in verse 26, and he sent him, I'm sorry, in, in verse 26, he says, where am I? In verse 30, <laughs> he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, that's interesting. If you nailed it, if you just confessed the Christ, then you were right, and it's a good proclamation, and the world needs to hear it. The crowds have it wrong, but Peter has it right. Wouldn't he tell them, go tell everybody. You nailed it, Peter. Well, Jesus is doing something. Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel. He's been demonstrating and restoring by the effect of his being the Messiah. But now, he's about to perform the saving ground of the gospel. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Every time Jesus healed, every time he does so, he does so not on the ground simply of his authority as God, but on the ground of the authority of his performance of grace. That he is declaring, I will make all things new by means of my own suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. 
It's something that Jesus is doing. There's something that Jesus is orchestrating, but not something that is done to him. And this is his concern. Why, tell, why does Jesus tell disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ? Well, it's for the same reason he's been saying similar things all along. He's said that a number of times when he heals someone. Because he has to make his way to Jerusalem. And Mark records it. He has to make his way to Jerusalem, not be dragged there in chains. Because he must continue to teach his disciples along the way, not be separated from them prematurely. Because he has far more suffering and far more rejection to experience before his death and resurrection. He is not yet prepared for that particular moment to come. More importantly, because Jesus must fulfill the fullness of what the prophets had spoken about him, even if the prophets' words about the suffering servant and the Son of Man, and there's still more work for the Messiah to do before his death and resurrection. Jesus is the Christ. This is true. Good confession, Peter. We're going to turn next week, and Jesus is going to reveal the heart, the center of what it means to be gospel-centered. But today, it's enough to say he is the anointed king, and he is the restorer of God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the anointed king is here. The Christ is here, the anointed one. You can reach out and you can touch him. You can speak to him and he can ask you probing questions, Jesus says. This is true. But this morning, I want to join Jesus in his question to every single soul here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Step out from the crowd and confess even the small seed of your faith. It's a complicated question because often people will take that, especially in the, the way that we speak about things today. Well, who do you say he is? And then whatever comes out of your mouth is going to have to just be okay. That's not the way that it works. Peter's going to say some things and Jesus is not going to be okay with it. It doesn't matter what you say about who Jesus is. What matters is who Jesus is. The question is, do you know him? And the call this morning to every single soul is to confess who he actually is. Step out from the crowd and confess faith. You see, you too are invited by Jesus' question and Mark's recording of this gospel with Peter at this point in Mark to join in the confession of Jesus as Messiah. And then, once we make that confession, we are to be silent with them and continue to listen to the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah that is to be revealed. We're never to leave the seat of saying, you're a Messiah. You're the one. And I'm listening. I'm following. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would call, particularly out from among this gathering, those who have been silent up to this point, or the, even those who have had mistaken statements. Maybe they've been more like the crowd who have been wrong about their confession, about who Jesus is. He's a mere man. Lord, I pray that you would call out from among the crowd, faith, 
a simple faith to confess that you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are the restorer of all things. If there is any hope for my soul, is that you would redeem. And Lord, I pray that you would make that confession not just a private one in this moment, but a public one. That you would bring about baptism, a need to confess before the church that I'm united to the Christ in faith. And in being united to the Christ in faith, I am being brought into Christ's body, the church. And I pray that for those who have been baptized, for those who have made that confession, that you would call out of their seats and into communion. That we, in communion, would confess, Jesus, you are the Christ. We follow after you. But then in communion, we would confess the rest of the gospel. That you are the Christ whose body was broken, whose blood was shed. And that it is by means of your sacrifice, not my confession, but your sacrifice, that you have restored me. And that you are the restorer of all things. Lord, I pray that you would give this confession to your church this morning and may it be pleasing to your ears to see a people following after the glories and grace of our God. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.